Hi everyone, this is Sam. Before this week's episode, this is a heads up that my new book, Sort Your Head Out, Mental Health Without All the Bollocks, is out on February 16th, published by Constable. Search my name on Amazon, Waterstones or wherever else you get your books to pre-order a copy now. It'll be available in hardback, Kindle and as an audio book via Audible. All your support, as always, is appreciated. Hello. And welcome to The Reset, a mental health podcast without all the bollocks. I'm Sam Delaney. My guest this week is the entertainment industry legend, Gary Farrow. For over five decades, Gary has been a key behind-the-scenes player in UK showbiz as publicist, advisor and trusted consigliere to the likes of George Michael and Elton John. From rock and roll to comedy to celebrity chefs, it was often Gary pulling the career strings of the country's biggest stars. He was also on the front line of negotiations with the press and a renowned expert at keeping the biggest scandals off the tabloid front pages. Gary's career has been fun, glamorous and often frantic. So what's it like to be living in the balmy world of show business, dealing with massive egos and huge pressures every day of your life while trying to manage your own secret mental health problems? I was delighted that Gary agreed to join me and answer that question. I hope you enjoy listening to this revealing chat. Gary, welcome to The Reset. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a real pleasure to have you, mate. I know you don't often um, do interviews because you're usually the man behind the scenes. Uh, so I feel very privileged to speak to you like this today, mate. I keep a, I keep a low profile. <laughs> yeah, well, that's part. I guess that's part of the job in your business, isn't it? Yeah, it's all about the client. Um, but yeah, I mean... I think if you uh, if you start putting yourself out there and you're available for every vox pop and whatever going, it, it sort of demeans what you're about, really. I, you know, the most important thing is the client and 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 making sure the artist has to say uh, and making sure everything's all right there. I feel easier that way. You do have a big personality, though, mate, and everyone who who knows you and works in the entertainment industry knows who you are and knows that you have a, a very big personality. You're a funny bloke as well. So is it ever the case that you've had to tone yourself down if you're with, like, say, a young client who's not yet as secure sort of thing in, in that world sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, uh, there, there are situations. It's, it's due to trust. It's mm. it's it, Anybody who works with me, I explain how I work. And if it sort of doesn't fit in with them, then I, I won't do it because – it's not pleasurable for me and I won't be doing them any good as well. So it's trust. And if they trust me, it's great. And, you know, I'm lucky enough to, to have the media trust me. I mean, you know, I, I, be, I was married to uh, someone who was very high profile in the media and, um, you know, I've got a very good address book um, and, and I never abused it. Um, and there's been many a time they rang me for advice or whatever. Mm. So, uh, you know, if uh, if I ring an editor, they they know I'm not mucking around. It's for something for discussion and to see if we can work something out. Um, and I, I guess it's nearly fifty years of trust, so that's what does it. Yeah, well, yeah, you certainly are regarded, you know, with a lot of respect. I know that from the other side of things as a journalist. Um, and uh, I think we'll get on to, you know, what it's been like for you, the highs and lows of working on like this sort of, 
you know, sometimes right on the sort of uh, the brutal edge of the entertainment industry and the media. Um, but yeah. first, I, I want to go back and talk a bit about um, your life before all of this. Um, you grew up in Kent, didn't you? Tell us a bit about when and where you grew up. Well, I grew up in, uh, I was born in Alpington, mm. uh, if you can refrain from laughing. Um, mm-hmm. um, not much happens in Alpington. You know, it's it literally, it, it, it was, well, it was a very, I lived on the Ramsden Estate, which was at that time a pretty dodgy area to live in. Um, it's completely different now. It's, you know, it's, it's actually quite beautiful. They built some fantastic houses there and whatever. But, you know, you go back, 40-odd years ago, and um, it was a completely different scenario. It was literally um, you just have to look after yourself because no one's going to look after you. It was it was one of those things. And I was a, I was a pretty shy kid when I started. I, 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 um, I had lots of problems that were never diagnosed when I started. Really, I realised, I think, from the age of about four or five, that something was wrong, but I knew I was smart. I knew I was clever, but no one understood me. You know, the teachers really weren't prepared for anything. You know, I suffered then with uh, a bit of anxiety. I had terrible OCD, um, and I had, you know, dyslexia, which, you know, I they didn't understand then. You know, I was made to stand in the store when I couldn't work something out, and, you know, you become the subject to ridicule. And it's tough. It's re- really tough. You can't explain it. You know, I'm right-handed now. But obviously, at the time, I was left-handed because when I muck around with a guitar, and trust me, I can't play, it's, I'm automatically left-handed. When I play cricket, left-handed. You know, all that. So I, I remember getting smacked with a ruler saying that was wrong. Wow. You use your other hand. And it was like, well, this seems... This seems the good, the best hand for me. I can draw better with this, or whatever. Mm. So you know, all these problems when you're that age mount up, and you, 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 there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to go. You, you, you know, you speak to your parents, and I had lovely parents. They, they, you know, it's just don't go. You know, get on with it. You'll find it. It'll be fine. Whatever. And that's that's okay if you've got great teachers that understand you and give you some support. But we didn't have that, you know. I, you know, when I eventually went to a secondary modern school, I had a terrible, terrible time at the junior school. It was just, I just hated it. I just hated it. I remember, you know, every day waking up early and then just worrying what was going to happen that day. And also, it was, you know, and if you're a timid little sod like Carl was at the time, trust me, I'm not now. Hmm. You, you know, you. you automatically attract bullying. You know, mm. the coward bullies always always deal with you and whatever. So I had a lot to deal with then. And um I I had a younger brother that that, that died and um I think I was about three and I witnessed I witnessed this and um and so I think that there's some an element of baggage there that I never spoke to anybody and never dealt with it. And there was nobody to speak to. You, 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 you speak to your doctor, you laugh. You know, it's it was just something that you just got on and dealt with. And really, uh, that's been my way all through life. It's just bite your lip, get up and dance. Just deal with it, you know? Um, so 
Well, there's a, a, a lot going on there, you know, undiagnosed conditions that presumably now you're, you, you know, you're using terms like OCD, um, dyslexia. Did they even have those? Did, were you even aware of those terms back I then? Was, I was aware of, of, of no name given to anything at the time. Anxiety was, I never heard that word. I never heard, you know, OCD was never, a, 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 30 years later, you know, it was like, I never heard those terminologies at all. Mm. And, uh, you know, when we were kids growing up on the estate, I never heard the word cancer ever mentioned, ever, mm. ever. Or mm. Alzheimer's. You know, yeah. they were obviously around, but they, they weren't as bad as they are now. But you never, you know, Alzheimer's, we used to call them doolally, you yeah. know, yeah. doolally. You know, and cancer was never mentioned. I, I, I think I only heard once in my entire life of living there, someone having that, you know, it was a dreaded word, but that was it, you know, and it, it, it was very weird. I don't know. I think you came from pretty much the same sort of background as me. And when someone dies, mm. you know, it, the uh, the curtains are drawn all through the house and whatever, and and – it's an indication to the outside people, look, listen, we want to be left alone. And, you know, when we draw back the curtains, you can knock on the door. That that was where it yeah. was on our state anyway. Yeah, so it was almost like there was almost shame attached to tragedy in a way. You know, a sort of a stigma or a shame when, when bad things happen. You sort of a secretive and very, very private about it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. We, 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 uh, I was private about it. A lot of people say, well, you can't remember anything really until you're, you, you know, from four onwards. Uh, I, I think, I don't think that's necessarily the case because I have vivid memories of certain things of, of, of ambulance sirens and things like that, that, you know, I remember that, and then there's a whole different scenario. So, you know, I had, I think between the ages of four, Sonia Junior School was um, was really bad. It was really, really bad. And then, you know, when I went to secondary modern, I sort of had a conversation with my dad, and he went, "Look, you can't, you can't keep putting up with this. You know, bullying and this. You got to do something about it." So, you know, I learned the, I sort of. I learned to fight, really, I guess. Well, I did. I quite enjoyed it, actually. So so well, how did how did that come about? You just plucked up the courage one day to, to sort of push back? I'll tell you what happened. It was a really weird scenario. I came out of school and and my parents had bought me a Barathea jacket, a really nice jacket. You know, all the other kids had you know, jackets with patches on their arms and shit. And they also, at that time, it, it was actually at the very end of my junior school. And I, um, I, you had to wear a cap, but none of the kids ever wore a cap, you know. Mm. Anyway, I, I had a cap and I wore it. Anyway, I came, came out of school and I was followed by these kids and they nicked my cap and they threw it and it ended up on the top of a lamppost. So mm. there's no way of retrieving it. And so every kid coming out of school saw this cap and they knew it was mine and whatever. And I was just coming home one day from school and the kid that, that did it lived opposite my house. So we sort of came down the street together, um, not together, but on either side of the street. 
And nearer getting to the house, I just lost it. I just lost it and went for him and just went for him. And and I remember seeing, I remember hitting him so hard on the nose that it it bled profusely. It was, you know, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed watching it. It was almost like I feel like I'm Malcolm McDowell in Clockwork Orange. You know, it it was, I really gave him a good hide. And, and after that, I was left alone. You know, and and you know, no one bothered me after that, and and I thank God I did it because it was one of those. He, he was a bully, you know, mm-hmm. and I remember my mother having to come out and stop it, and then the, his parents complained, and my parents and my dad just laughed and whatever it is, and that that going into secondary modern school uh, toughened me up big time, mm-hmm. and. Uh, I still had the same problems, obviously, going into secondary modern school because nothing had changed. You know, there was no specialist out there. You know, you know there was no psychiatry. There was no, there was nothing really. So really, it's just another level up and a bigger school. And it was a an all boys school um, called Midfield that was in St Paul's Cray, which. Anybody ever knows it is, you know, if you look under dump in the dictionary, it says St. Paul's Cray, you know. <laughs> and um, and did you do a good job of pretending you're okay? Was your agenda just to hide all of this, the anxiety and, you know, any sadness or anything like yeah, that? Yeah. You, you, I, just, you I, just learned to put on a front. Yeah. The oh. anxiety I sort of dealt with in my own way by by thinking of other things, breathing, you know, just breathing differently. I dealt with that. My OCD got worse, and I think it got worse because I got a lot of it off my mother. And obviously my mother suffered big time after my brother died. So her anxiety and OCD sort of washed off on me, you know. I was constantly having to check this, check that, check the other. You know, I used to get up at night and open their bedroom door to check that they were still breathing. You know, it was very wow. weird. It was very full on. You know, it was yeah. – I couldn't go to sleep until I knew they were in the house and my dad worked late and, you know, sometimes I stood at the window waiting for the bus to come back and make sure one of them were on it. And it was just taking over me. It was just taking over me and it was – you know, there was nothing you could do about it at the time. Well, actually, I I had it all through my life, and then all of a sudden, it sort of stopped about ten years ago. And I know David Beckham has it. Yeah. Um, and I used to used to I used to with a sugar came with breakfast, or I used to make sure that the the level of the sugar was the same level. And and you think, God, that's this kid needs to see someone, you know? Yeah, yeah. But were you aware that it was, like, problematic? Because those little habits that people get into are very private usually, aren't they? I think, no, you know... I wasn't, I wasn't aware that OCD was a problem. I thought that everybody just got on with their life in the normal way or whatever. Yeah. Um, I, I was aware that something was going on that I tried to spell and I tried to do, you know, I learned how to spell one word and then 10 minutes later I couldn't spell it, uh, different different letters in different places. And I tried and tried, and it was frustration that, you know, I knew I was a smart kid, mm. but something was stopping me from doing this and I couldn't understand why, you know. And, um, and your parents at that time really, 
they, you know, they, they, well, my parents, you know, were so loving and supportive, but nearly all parents at that time, certainly the, the mates I knew, when you went to school, it became, it became their problem. You, you were their yeah. problem until quarter to four, the bell went or whatever, or usually 1230 where I, I up the wagon fucked off, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, what about, I don't know if you're comfortable with going back to this, but you, you know, it's fine if you're not, but you know, you touched upon your brother dying and you were three years old. Do you remember that? Uh, yeah, I do. I do. I do. I remember, um, he was in a high chair and, uh, and, um, he had this uh, leather harness that kept him strapped in or whatever. And my mother had just gone, literally, we were in a, a sort of second floor flat She'd gone downstairs to, you know, hang some washing out or whatever. So she was only gone a few minutes and I was there. And um, he obviously dropped a toy of some sort and he leant to ping it, pick it up. And the equilibrium, the balance of the of the high chair had obviously gone. And as it tippled, topped over and whatever and fell, it strangled him. So. Right. I was there and I didn't really know what to do and what whatever or whether he was mucking around or, you know, at three, you don't really, you know, it's a problem. And, um, yeah, I just remember the, uh, the, 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 the screams from my, my, my mother when she came back and, uh, um, everything that went through it or whatever. So, um, yeah, that, that, that played on my mind. Uh, and, uh, and I think that's probably one of the reasons why, you know, I still with my kids when they were at home. I still never could never go to bed until I knew they were in or whatever. Mm. And I like to I like to go around the phone and check everybody's all right before I go to bed. So I think that's the only thing that's a bit of anxiety. And I think it's probably good parenting, but there's also a bit of OCD there um, and, and whatever. And um, it, it gets to a point now where I've lived through this. So what's the what's the, you know? And I've done pretty well. What what's the point in seeing anybody now? Because, you know, I don't think anything's going to change. And, you know, I like to be a, a better man every day. You learn every day, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure whether my, um, I've got three girls. So let me tell you, you, you you've got no chances. It stands already. I'm already woke to death as it is. <laughs> well, um, I mean, you know, nowadays we would certainly, you know, people would certainly label what you went through as trauma, extreme trauma. Yeah. And not just, you know, therapists, but, you know, the psychiatrists, there is science to suggest that that would have had a an, ex, a, an extreme long-lasting impact on on your mind and the way that you, you cope with things. But you say that you don't feel the need to sort of address it Beyond the way in which you you already have done just by yourself. No, I'm. I'm. I, you know, if, if things were available at the at the time, mm. then obviously, yeah, I would have quite rightly addressed it because it probably you know would have made my life easier. I mean, you know, and 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 it, it would definitely affect your confidence at the early age, mm. Mm. all those things or whatever. So, um, what's bizarre is that I chose a, a an industry to come into. Which you know, I really should have gone into gardening or painting or photography. I love photography. <laughs> yeah, you know, they're a lot less stressful. You know, coming into this industry is you know primarily you're dealing with egos, 
arseholes and, 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 you know, it's a good title for a book, really, isn't it? Ego, <laughs> yeah. ego arseholes and artists. <laughs> it's a great title for a book, mate. Um, so what about your kind of emotions? As you, you know, have you been able to sort of regulate and control your emotions? A lot of people go through trauma. Like, for instance, on this podcast, I've interviewed several, you know, um, veterans of the military. And one thing that a lot of them have struggled with is, is you know, being able to control their emotions. They, they you know, the tra- when they left the trauma unaddressed, sometimes they found it very easy to lose their temper suddenly and without warning. Like, they didn't even know it was coming or, or be volatile. Is that something that you, you've ever struggled with? Yeah, I guess so. No, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say volatile, but you know, I, I, there, there was a time when I I did have a bad temper um, or short temper and, um, and whatever. Um, and, and mainly, that's that's down to frustration. Is 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 you know, if I was dealing with an artist that just wouldn't listen, and it was like, look, I've seen this before. If you're going to this, this is what's going to happen. Blah blah blah. They won't listen, and, and it was like. That gets frustrating, you know. You know, you get to the Jerry Maguire point where you go, look, you know, help me to help you to help me to help yeah. you. You know, it's yeah. one of those. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what have you have you just mellowed as you've got older? Naturally, I think you mellow, you mature, you get older. You think, oh, it's not worth it. You know, what's the point? This, that, and the other. Um, you know, you know, I don't have to do stuff anymore that I did. You know, that, that I used to do before. Yeah, you do mellow and whatever. You know, it's it, it, it's life's too short now, isn't it? It's you, you, there are other things, you know. Do you um, tell me about how you first landed in the entertainment industry? Because you know, you had a traumatic, difficult um uh, childhood by sounds of things and and you know you you were riddled with anxiety and when you were younger you were quite timid and then suddenly you you join the entertainment industry and you rise quite rapidly how, how did that transition come about well it was uh, i i left school at 15 and a half and i didn't have a job and my mum came with me up to london one day and we went around some ad agencies and i got a job as a runner at one ad agency, and I, I was only there six weeks or whatever it was. I don't know, maybe a bit longer. But I also worked Saturdays at uh, One Stop Records, which was in Dean Street, which was a fantastic place. It was, you know, they sold import rec- records, they sold bootlegs, yeah. and everything. It was the centre of music. You know, everybody used to go there. Uh, and Danny Baker and I worked there. And uh, Danny Baker's record collection, which he's giving part away, was extensively nicked from this shop, like I did. Um, <laughs> right. Okay. We we used to uh, we used to uh, have our friends come up, and they used to say, "Have you got so and so?" I said, "Yes, sir, I have." Blah blah blah. Used to put it in a bag with about four other records, then meet them for a divvy up on Charing Cross Station. You know, <laughs> it was the bus. The bar, it, well, it, was, it was it was owned at the time by Harley Quinn Records. I can't remember the name of the guy, but you know, each week, you know, he, he, you know, all these records were coming in, mm. you know, and going under the counter. Um, you know, I remember selling, you know, loads of copies of uh, the Joker by Steve Miller, which was a big album. Yeah, and um, yeah, we nicked, we nicked so much. I mean, we nicked we nicked. Everything that came out, we nicked a couple of each, without question. And um, 
I got Elton John used to come in, and uh, he was a mass record buyer. Yeah. You know, he used to buy at that time sometimes five or six of everything. So he had it in his car, the eight track, and he had the cassette, he had the record, he had the record for home, the record for touring, you know, whatever. And he bought records for other people. You know, he just yeah. He just he just loved music, loved music, and we got we got friendly. And I used to put all this stuff by in a big pile. So when he came in, I said, "Save you doing all the stuff." Here you go, got it all, all ready for you. And he loved it. So yeah. he used to do it regularly. And he used to come in, I, I guess, once every three weeks or whatever. We got friendly, and he started Rocket Records. And I, it was like, "Give us a job." And he went, well, "We've only just started." I went, "Well, it's all right." I'll have a, I'll take the runner job. He said, but we, we got, no, there's nothing to run. I said, <laughs> give me the runner job and stop mucking around or whatever. So he called John Reed up. John Reed, I went around to see John Reed, his manager. John Reed offered me the money. I, I think, forget what it was. It was about eight pounds a month, I think it was. Um, um, and I started from there. And, and, and literally, rather than being a runner, and just, you know, dropping a parcel off. I used to know the people at the other end and talk to them and how we do this, that, and the other, and they knew me. And, you know, my confidence grew with that. I knew, always knew, even when I was a kid, you know, everybody around here, the, the estate used to want to be a footballer, uh, you know, or an actor or whatever, mm. you know. They always well, that was it. But the reality is that we're either going to go in the Navy or get or be a gas fair. I mean, my best right. friends are gas fair. Um, that was it. So I just knew I was going to do it. I knew I was going to do it. So, and it grew from there on. I just, I progressed and learned my trade, um, met tons of people, um, became very, very, very street cred at 15 and a half in London. Um, knew Soho like you wouldn't believe. Um, at that time, it was a very, very vibrant, bustling, Beautiful, colourful area. So, we're talking about the, are we talking about the seventies here now? Yeah, but seventy-two yeah. probably. Right. And Elton but, John has just had a big hit with with Rocket Man, so um, it was about that time. And then Rocket Records grew, and your role grew within it. And is that because you just developed so many good relationships with people inside and outside the the company? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, I went on to do other things, but still kept in touch with Elton. I used to, we used to call each other three or four times a day, every day for forty-five years. You know, it was uh, even when you weren't, even during the periods when you weren't directly. Yeah, there was a time. Yeah. There was a time where I said to him, "Do you mind?" He went, "No, no, no." I went, I went over and worked for Rod Stewart at Reva Records, right? And I worked there for a while at Kings Road, and then. I went from there, I think, to EMI and spent some time there. And EMI was like the BBC. It was like the, the backbone. No one ever got fired or this, that, and the other. But you learnt a lot there. You yeah. learnt a lot. And um, I, I spent some time, time at EMI, enjoyed it, and, and sort of work, worked my way up to then starting my own company. Uh, and at that time, it was a consultancy company, I think we we're the only people that were doing promotion and pre and press at the time. And at one time, I had I had uh, Rod, Rod Elton, George Michael, um, Heaven Seventeen, Wham, uh, Bob Geldof, Paul Young, 
Um, the list was endless. You know? Frankie goes to Hollywood. Did you? Did I you did work Frankie with him? Goes to Hollywood, and I, I and I and I and I I remember the day of breaking the record. I was driving in my car, and I was actually going up to Radio One. I think I was going to have a coffee with someone there, and long before phones and. Mike Reed played the record, mm. and then at the end of the record, he went, "That's quite disgusting. I'm not going to play that record again." <laughs> I slammed my brakes on, part just off where the BBC was. Went into a chemist. So I said, "Could I use your phone urgently?" And they said, well, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." Thinking there's an accident or something or whatever. So I rang up. I rang up Paul Morley and Trevor Horn. Yeah. Um, uh, um, ZTT, and I just went, Mike Reed said he's not going to play the record again. I, I'm going to put a story out as banned. Yeah. So I rang the standard, this, that, and the other. Before the BBC knew what, what I hit, it was banned, 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 all over the place, on the news, banned, this, that, and the other. And Radio 1 hadn't banned it at the time. But, the, the you know, the following day was the legendary playlist meeting where, you know, I think they did ban it, but I shot the bolt early and went everywhere with it as yeah. banned. And, and and the record, the following day, did 100,000. Wow. And that hadn't really been done before. Like now, I suppose that's like, that's kind of become a sort of a standard PR it, it move, was, isn't it? I did the same thing with Rod Stewart when he did the uh, – he did tonight's the night, you know, with 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 the light. Spread your wings and let me come inside. And I <laughs> I, I I put that out as banned as well. Really, nothing nothing had been banned yeah. since really Jatam, you know, <laughs> at that time. Um, what they used to do is just not play it and not tell you that it was banned. You know, it was one of those ones because I minute mean, it's banned. You know, Trevor Horn did about nine mixes. The record went out. It absolutely exploded. Exploded. Mm. Um, yeah, I quite enjoyed that. And every time I see Mike Reed now, he looks at me and shakes his head as if to say, "You done me." <laughs> yeah, he had it coming. And funnily enough, I interviewed Mike Reed a few years ago, and of course, you always ask about that. I like just like any other journalist. That will always be a question that haunts him forever. Like, why did you ban Relax? And he sort yeah. of does a big sigh and goes, I didn't bloody ban Relax. It's uh, it's funny. Um, yeah. What about you? the names you mentioned there made me immediately think of how busy you must have been around Live Aid. Um, what, were, well, what, what was your role in that? Well, Live Aid was very weird. I get, I get a call. The My receptionist said... Um, Geldof's on the phone, and I, I, you know, I knew Geldof. I managed Paula, and you know, Paulie Yates at the yeah. time. So, you know, God bless her. And uh, she said, Geldof's on the phone, says it's urgent. So I said, put him through. So I went out. He went, Farrow, right? Mm-hmm. I'm doing this concert. I need all your rich friends who've got helicopters, all right? And there's no money in it. Bang, <laughs> phone down. And that was it. And I went, well, what the fuck now? About 10 minutes later, Harvey Goldsmith rang me. He went, did Geldof call you? And I went, yeah. He said, well, here's the outline. We're doing this concert then, blah, 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 blah. You know, we would need a number of helicopters um, because, obviously, transportation at that time, get, getting a Wembley, traffic jams, mm. uh, was a real problem or whatever. So 
at that time, I was, you know, I was very friendly with Noel Edmonds, who had a, a helicopter. And then we knew other people who had helicopters. So we rode them in. I got, a, I got about 15 helicopters. I got all the oil, the petrol, all donated, all the pilots put their time in free. So I did the, I did the whole helicopter thing from Battersea Heliport to Wembley, right. uh, which was nine minutes, just maybe a little less. Um, uh, so I did the whole working that one out. It was the at, at the time it was the biggest airlift since the Falklands. Wow! And what wow. we did was what we did was we we um we had all the cars waiting at the top of the road at Wembley Way, um, but we arranged with this uh, cricket club at the top that we could land there. And you know, bar bar bar, and this that. So they played their cricket match until all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden the stumps were up. This that and the other. They run for cover, <laughs> landed. Superstar got out. This that and the other. Ran stumps back in. Cricket match back on. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, you know what else of it? I mean, God, I could listen to live aid series all day, but I'm also thinking, Jesus Christ, you're like. What's his name? Robert Duval in Apocalypse Now, right? It's the biggest yeah. rock concert that the world has ever seen. Yeah. And you're there at the heart of it, like a military general, bloody driving these helicopters in and out of Wembley Stadium. But then I go back to like, you know, 10 minutes earlier, you're telling me about how you were so timid at school that, you you know, you couldn't talk. The teachers were humiliating you and all of that. I mean, this is a huge change in your personality and your confidence in a well, relatively short space of time, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can I can tell you what it's attributed to now. Two things is people can only say no. I learned that very quickly. You know, mm. you know, yes or no. And if it's no, fine, whatever it is. Mm. And uh, you know, my father told me he said a great line to me once. He said, "You'll never get lost in this world as long as you've got a tongue in your head. I.e., you can ask whatever." Yeah. Yeah. Well, I never forgot that. So, so the, the worst someone can say is no. And the other thing that I relied on, and I've relied on all my life, is bullshit. <laughs> it's bullshit. Yeah. Because you know, I left with no education, you know, literally my own fault. And education is the greatest thing that anybody could do. It's, it gives you power, confidence, knowledge. It's the greatest thing you can do. And lucky enough, you know, I inducted that into all of my children. But, but you know, it, it was it was bullshit. And, you know, I remember standing there, the uh, status quo were the first to go, mm. and the van came with them in. They were the first to leave Battersea to go to Wembley, and um, they were still pissed from the night before, from the night before's gear. So you had to really, we we said keep your head down, head down, where the rotors were going, because we weren't going to switch the rotors off because it takes time. And cost money, and it, it was it was definitely military and the whole thing. Mm. So keep your head down, keep your head down, get in, put your headphones on, this, that, and the other. And they were fucking wandering all over the airport, and it was like, no, come here. <laughs> yeah, I had visions of Rick, Rick Parfit's head going down the Thames. You know? <laughs> what an image! What an image! Um, what an image. Let me ask was, you. Go on. Go on. Well, no, I was just, just going to say, well, you know, it was really weird because everybody had their set time to come. Yeah. Don't be late. If you're in, if you're late, you lose your slot, blah, blah, blah. So it was literally 
as they took off, Paul Young came in. And blah, blah, blah. As he, he took off, this, that, and the other, you two came in. And, 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 and so it went all the way through, you know. And, you know, and Freddie came on his own and and whatever. Um, but, yeah, it was uh, – it was. I'll never forget the whole thing because, obviously, you, you, you wouldn't, but it was an incredible day. I started about 5 o'clock, got to Battersea, and we got a fantastic weather report because had the weather been dodgy, we, we, we would have been up Ship Creek. Mm. Um, but it went it – went, it went clockwork. Everything, even from uh, Phil Collins coming off stage and we flew straight to, you know, planes were delayed so we could land right next to Concord, never been done before. He gets off, goes to Concord, flies off to Philadelphia to play there. Brilliant. Yeah, what a moment. Yeah. Throughout well, all these big names that you mentioned, you became friends with and you, they, were, they lent on you so heavily. To what degree do you feel in your career you yourself have had to be a therapist to some of these quite fragile, let's be honest, egotists? Well, the, the thing is, when <clears throat> when you do this job, you're like an emergency doctor. It is, it, they are, tw- you know, they, they take up your time. They are 24-7 and, and, you know, a lot of them don't sleep or don't really care what time zone they're in. They ring you and go, um, I'm not going to do it tomorrow. Um, you know, I've got a bit of headache, blah, blah, blah. Can you, can you put it, could it be put it at the back of the itinerary or whatever it is? So, you know, whoever you'd arrange something with, it's going to be less than pleased. So you become a conduit. Um, more than that, you're a conduit between an artist and the media, mm. uh, be it broadcast, print, television, or whatever at the time. You're the one to keep it, you've got to keep them both happy. It's not just the artist, you've got to keep the media happy. So, I think if they see automatic results of what they're doing, they want to do it, you know? Mm. They, they don't mind what they do. But a lot, you know, there are a lot of them that just um, just expect it, just expect it. And, you know, being in this job, you're the last to get paid. Trust me. Right, right. Lawyers first, accountants next, um, and then you if you're lucky. You know, it's one of those ones... Because they don't, they, they don't see all the stuff that you're doing behind the scenes, you know, talking something up, making something good, this, that, and the other. If there's a bad story, it's bouncing it off the front page, trying to get it inside, trying to get a headline approval. You know, it's a different thing. But you do crisis, you know, you, you've managed crises for, for so many people. Um, and most of them we just wouldn't know about. But when there is like a disturbing story, an upsetting story, a secret someone didn't want to get out, or sometimes just a you know an old fashioned lie that's going to be printed, the emotional impact that that has on a client, do they? Do you find yourself like on the phone to them, just trying to support them emotionally? Have you have you had to do a lot of that in your time, like effectively? Celebrity yeah. Samaritans, so to speak. Yeah, there, I mean, I, I won't obviously. I won't say who it is because it was private and it won't be damage limitation anymore. But there, there was someone, uh, and um, I, I'm very fond of them. And uh, I knew, I knew that the, um, I knew that this person was getting done done over um, by just an opportunist you know, individual. Mm. And uh, I thought, 
fuck it, I'm not going to let this happen. So, you know, I did support them. I did tell them that I'll make this go away because this is this is not a true story. And uh, it was affecting their health really badly. And um, I couldn't stand by and see that. So I, um, yeah, I made that, I, I made that go away. I was, uh, I have a very, very good support team um, of people that I use security, private eyes. You know, I've got a lot of people that, I, that work for me that come under my umbrella of what I do or what I've mm. done. Um, and, uh, you know, I have a good reputation for that. I think, I think, I don't know why, but you know, there's quite a lot of, of cuttings I've seen where it says um, very tough, tough negotiator or whatever. I think I am. If, if there's something that I believe in and I know it's true, Mm. Yeah, I, I, I will. I will do. I will fight that end. Um, what What do you think, Fane? What from your observing it over the decades? What do you think Fane does to people's mental health? I think. Um, I think unless you have the most immense talent, like you know, like Taylor Swift, like Ed, like you know, those sort of people that you you know they and they mm. love what they do. Mm. Um, it becomes a very barren landscape. You know, you 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 have a minor hit. You think it's great, top of the pops. You get a dressing room. You know, people are very polite to you. They run around, get your sandwiches, your drinks, and you think, "Wow, this is great." You know, this is just you know, it's like a footballer. Mm. You know, he thinks he's going to earn three hundred grand for, for in perpetuity. It doesn't always doesn't always be that way, and you know, it, and it does affect people. You know. I, I've known people who have had number one records and um, they're now taxi drivers. There's nothing wrong with taxi driving or whatever it is, but yeah. the, the, the mental come down from that is, is quite tough to take, you know, and people that would come into this industry, they, they don't have the proper support and love like they used to have in a, a while back. You know, it, it, it's now you're thrown into the lion's den and once – you get out of it or whatever, you're on your own, you know? You, you're on your own. And um, I think the fashion business and the film business, it, it's probably much the same and not far behind the advertising industry. You know, life's very tough. You know, it was tough when I was a kid, but it was, yeah, it, it, I think it's tougher for people now. You know, but, but the, the first thing you ask is, like, what do you want to do? I want to be famous. And it's like, oh, forget it. You know, yeah. it, it's rather, you know, I'm desperate to be a songwriter. I'm desperate to be a performer. I'm, I'm working hard, learning my trade. I'm doing plays around the world or whatever. You know, this is great. You know, it, that's great because that will probably lead to fame and fortune, you know. Yeah. But it's, I want to be famous. You know, it's, I can't, I can't be dealing with those people. I just, no time for that, you know, no time. I just look at these complete, you know. What about? Arseholes that really have nothing to contribute. What about the, um, you know, obviously you've, you've had to maintain a good relationship with the press, the tabloid press. You've got great friends in that. You've had, you know, that that's helped you. But, you know, you mentioned Paula Yates, who's a great example of someone who many of us would perceive as having been chewed up and spat out by tabloid press over the years. Uh, 
how did you feel how do you feel about that when you see real tragedies like that from people you work with and, and friends how, how does that well, make you feel towards the the press coverage in the tabloids over the years well the um interesting interesting choice that you you did there um I was very, very, very fond of Paula. She was a lovely human being. Um, she was very highly respected within the media. Um, she was a great broadcaster. You know, the Tube was incredibly successful. Um, uh, you know, she was, when I was involved with her, she happily married to Bob and had beautiful children. And she lived a wonderful life. You know, she used to, I'd take her for lunch and she used to, she used to not have a main course so she could have two puddings. You know, <laughs> she, she used to go for afternoon tea at Fortnum and Mason's. You know, mm. she would never even have an aspirin. So to see the demise of her along the way was incredibly upsetting. Um, it really was upsetting. You know, she, she was such a lovely, lovely person. And, and, and can I say beautiful? Mm. I mean, she photographed, Brian Harris was a photographer. She she photographed beautifully, you know, absolute star, great sense of humour as well, and very very naughty, you know. She she was just a very very naughty, very funny, beautiful individual, and you know, to, as I say, to watch her demise, which was out of everybody's control, really, um, was 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 hard to see, and I don't know whether the press would were bad to her really i mean you know they they saw it as it was and you know they print it good or bad don't they you know mm. it's you know it, it it was a story at the time and we've seen other sad stories she's not the first and she won't certainly be the last so when people look at stories um well you know obviously george michael good friend of yours you know he would have, I'm sure, said that he was given a hard time, an unfair time by the press. And then we see story, you know, then there was like the, the tragedy of Caroline Flatmore recently. And and you sort of, when people say, well, the media played a role in this, the, the tabloid reporting was relentless and unfair and it played a role in, in their demise. How do you feel about that? those accusations? Well, I think George, George Michael, first of all, is take take him out of the equation at the moment um, because he's, he's another level of brilliance or whatever. Yeah. It, it, the, the papers will, if, if somebody like there's been a couple of deaths, haven't there from people who've been in, um, I don't know. What's what's the, the Island thing or. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Celebrity. Yeah. Celebrity love Island. Yeah. Celebrity. Well, a celebrity. They're not a celebrity yeah. at all. But, they have nothing, they're contributing nothing, done nothing. So their whole life is, do, do they end up with a bird, you know, on a love island and this, that. They come out of it and the next thing you know, they're getting three grand cash a night doing PAs at DJ, discos and things like that. And so they're perceived to be celebrities by the media, mm. you know. Mm. That's it. They've not, they've not actually worked or done anything to do that. They, you know, when you look at their track record, it's it's nothing, you know. Mm. They, so it's it's the easy ones that become celebrities that become sad fodder along the way. George Michael was a different story. Um, you know, I've never met a more talented individual in my life. Mm. This man was 
beyond what what you think how great he is. He was beyond that. It's just, just uh, you know, you know. And he said to he said to me, and he said to his manager and other people, "Is stop trying to save me from myself." And you know, well, he's a grown up. He, you know, uh, uh, okay. Yeah, you know, it's you got to take that on board. Yeah. Um, I know you can't go into too much detail about your relationship with Elton, and it, but it would, of course, be remiss of me not to touch upon that before I let you go today. I know, aside from your professional relationship, as you said, you were very close friends. That friendship ended a few years ago. How's that affected you? How do you feel about about that? Because it's always tough to lose to lose something, yeah, a, a, a long, it, lifelong friendship. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's he was one of one of my one of my best friends. You can't say it. You know, I, I think over the, the, the period of about forty five years, I think we fell out twice. Um. And you know that that didn't last long, so you know people fall out a lot more than that. Um, I have nothing but respect for him as an artist. I've seen him, I've watched him play over two hundred and fifty times. I've never seen him do a bad gig ever. Um, beyond talented, beyond generous, did have a terrible temper, but did one of the most amazing things, you know. I think 25, 26 years ago, he decided he needed help and he went to Chicago and he was there for over two months and he came back and he never touched a drink or any drug since. And for that, you have to highly commend people. Mm. That is, that is, that is some showing of strength, you know. But I've sat with him, I've sat with him next to him on the piano when he's written songs and he's just, after 20 minutes, if he hasn't got it, that's it. He'll, he'll move it aside and go somewhere else. It's quite extraordinary how he works. Quite extraordinary. Do you, do you uh, miss him? Do you miss him from your life now? Uh, I, di- I did terribly for the first two years because we it was literally four times a day. Um, and he's got the most wicked, wicked, funny sense of humour. So we both like football, you know, sport. Um, we, we like the movies and, and the rest. So there was a, a lot to talk about. Um, but I've sort of learned to live without it, really, because it was one of those things. It, you know, it was um, – it got to a situation where it became sort of intenable, you know, untenable. It, it's – I don't know. It just – it's one of those things. And, uh yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I, I look out for him and watch out. I mean, personally, I think he's overexposed at the moment. I think he's doing too much, but he won't give a rat's ass what I think. Um, but, you know, it's good that we have him around. We should be proud of him. Um, he does make me laugh the way he dresses still, though. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I don't suppose that was anything you could ever influence. No, 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 no. It was all, you know, you know, he, he had the same sort of weird upbringing. He had a lovely mum, beautiful mum. Mm. And she, you know, she she saved up and he went to the Royal School and music. And, uh, you know, he was great. But, you know, he couldn't wear what he wanted to wear. So eventually, you know, when he eventually left home, 
he's just mm. rebelled, and uh, he's been rebelling ever since. <laughs> uh, Gary, what about nowadays? How, how's life for you now? Um, you know, you, you you've been through some extreme highs, but also some some extreme lows across your life. Uh, how, how as you get older? How do you feel about life? Are you better at coping with the bad times as well as the good? Well, this year's this year's been been a pretty shit year for me. I mean, I uh, I had a knee transplant which went well, and then uh, I got overconfident and fell, um, and then I broke my leg, and then it was broken again because the doctor didn't deal with it in the first place, uh, and then I broke my wrist, and this is all on the top of being in lockdown and. Uh, you know, COVID. So, you know, it's the same for everybody in the world. But individually, it, it, it became, there were some dark days there. Uh, mm. I'll be lying if I said otherwise. Certainly in hospital, when I was in hospital for about three weeks with my leg up, you couldn't get any visitors because they wouldn't allow anybody in. So it became a very, very, very dark, you know, uh, uh, and I was lucky. I was on Booper, but the rumor is shit. Mm. Telly never worked. Light kept fizzing. You screamed for your painkiller. No one came in. It was, you know, you didn't really, you didn't really think there was a world out there like that. So every now and again, it shocks you when you get sucked into that sort of world, and you realise when you're out, you know, just the simple pleasures of being able to walk take for granted. So does that make you now appreciate things more? Are you sort of does it give it as it in a weird way? Has it made it change your perspective and made you more thankful? Well, more thankful, more respected, certainly. Um, especially when you know you've got less ahead than you've got behind you. You know, it's you make the most of each day. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it it is what it is, and uh, you know, I don't think you know I wouldn't have taken those sort of people on. You know, those that we talked about before from Love Island, you know, they've done interest. Yeah. It's people. I like to, I like to work with people that, you know, are more intelligent than me. that have got, that have an incredible talent, something set, something different, you know, everybody, you know, I've not just worked with, um, with music people, you know, no. I worked with the, the, the late great Addison Creswell on, on changing comedians from being 2000 seaters to 20,000 seaters. You know, Michael McIntyre, Lee Evans, Jack D, you know. And then, you know, I did a whole spell looking after the chefs coming up and doing exactly the same. Marco Pierre White, Gordon Ramsay, you know, the lot. Yeah, yeah. So you you you, you sort of helped turn these other categories of, of people into the new rock stars. Because that's what yeah, they said, didn't they? they, they you'd, you'd work with rock stars and then suddenly there was a period where everyone was saying comedians are new rock stars and then chefs were the new rock stars. I wonder yeah. if you I wonder if you're going to repeat the trick again with some other profession, mate. Well, I've, I've looked into it really. I mean, there is, I am dabbling with the, with the art world. I think the okay. art world is quite, is quite good. Um, so I have a couple of very, very good protégés in that and we'll see what happens. I think um, I think you should do it with podcasters and somehow get us into twenty thousand seaters, mate. Have a think about that. Well, the way about that was <laughs> was we came up with the idea, which was like in the Kevin Costner movie, is that if you build it, they will come. 
Right. So if we got a front page and a big story and we kept getting front pages on these people, then the demand to see them would be huge. You know, and there was a time when, you know, both Lee Evans and and Michael McIntyre, both of them, I think played at least 14 consecutive nights at the O2. Well, I hope they paid you, mate. On Uh, time. (laughs) Yeah. You don't want to get on the wrong side of me if I don't get paid. I'll (laughs) I'll bear that in mind. Mate. Well, I am. there's a great story. There's a, a, a great entrepreneur guy used to manage Yes called Brian Lane. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, he, 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 he describe him, I guess, as a rascal. Yeah. Um, he's one of those ones. And I did something to him once and you know, I didn't get paid and whatever. And I rang him up and said, Brian, a joke's a joke, you know, whatever. He said, Gary, every week I write down people's names who I owe money to. And I'll put them in a hat. He said, if you don't fuck off, you won't even go in the hat. Fuck it now. <laughs> How did that end? He paid. Don't worry, he paid. And eventually, but <laughs> people forget. People forget that you're you're a mouthpiece for good news. Yeah. That's yeah. what you are. That's what you do. But you know. You could also be a mouthpiece for something else if, if, if you know, they don't play the game right. <laughs> Gary, I've kept you long enough. Once again, I appreciate so much you spending the time and, and being so honest and, and telling me just some of the stories, a fraction of the stories from your incredible career. Because, um, I, like I said at the start, I know you don't do this often. So I really appreciate it, mate. Um, and I wish you all the best. I can't wait to see, uh, you know, what, what you do next. Well, you know, I'm looking forward to it. I've got some ideas. Uh, always a pleasure talking to you. Um, great. Have a great Christmas if this is going out before Christmas. Yeah, this will be our but, Christmas special, I think, mate. Well, that'll be great. And yeah. uh, I'll look forward to it. And whatever. And um, you guys out there, I hope you enjoy it, you know. Nice one. Cheers, Gary. All the best. Take care, mate. Bye. There you go, Gary Farrow, a man who, like so many of us, kept all his pain and problems bottled up for years, but has come to talk about this stuff with such inspiring honesty. My huge thanks to him for coming on The Reset to share with us. That's it for this week and for this year from The Reset. Thanks to all of you who've listened during 2022 and sent me messages of support. I love doing this. I love speaking to the incredible guests who come on the show about their lives and getting feedback from all of you lot. Here's to it all continuing in 2023. To help it do so, why not subscribe if you don't already at samdelaney.substack.com where you'll find a vast archive of interviews, newsletters and bonus pods. I'll be back with more in January. Until then, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, be lucky and don't let the dickheads get you down.